Hello, deconstruction community. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, a show that gives a platform for people to share their stories of surviving toxic religious environments. As a trigger warning, a lot of topics on this show will revolve around religious trauma, mental health, and spiritual abuse. Hello, everyone. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. And today I am here with Judah Kreinbrook. He grew up in a toxic Christian environment. His parents were certain that the world would end at a certain time. His parents were also anti-vax and believe in alternative medicines. And they also believed in separating from the world. How are you today, Judah? I am doing good, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. And so as we get into the interview, I think like the first question is what was your childhood like regarding religion? Regarding religion specifically, I think like, you know, uh, I always go back to my earliest memories. My earliest memory, I used to live in this house, two stories, uh always used to sleep with my parents because I was scared of um lived on like national park like game lands always used to be scared of like the bears were going to come in my room my room was downstairs and so I'd always be like in their room upstairs on the second floor and whatnot and at the bottom of the stairs my dad built a prayer room and in the prayer room he had um you know Jesus in Gethsemane and we were Pentecostal-ish like Church of God so all the Frank Peretti books and whatnot. And my dad used to just pray for hours and, you know, pray in tongues. And um, that was kind of my first memory of religion and what it meant to like, think about uh, God. It was kind of confrontational, right? So it was us mm-hmm. against the world, us against yeah. demons. Um, and, you know, soon after I was being introduced to concepts like the Trinity, I was four or five at the time. Oh, wow. That's quite an early age to be introduced to then. Yeah, very, very early. Um, You know, I don't think there's been a time in my life um, until recently where I've like not been forced to comprehend those things, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, really. (laughs) And so could you talk a little bit about what Pentecostals believe? Yeah, so... I, it's funny because I'm not even incredibly sure of it myself. Like I couldn't to this day, you know, be a good Pentecostal and tell you everything that it is that Pentecostals believe and how it, you know, demarcates or, you know, separates them from other believers. But I'll hit the main point. So, I mean, the main point is that Pentecost is not just a gift, right? Like on the day of Pentecost, it's said that, you know, the spirit descended the holy spirit descended upon you know the disciples in the upper room and that was a sign that you know christ had given to them that he would always be with them etc etc and that gift of the holy spirit wasn't just supposed to be endowed on believers because it was a special gift for the disciples for the apostles like during the post-resurrection period in early christianity rather it was in it's in modern pentecostalism it is the sign that you are saved so if you cannot speak in tongues you should doubt your salvation if you are not doing what jesus commanded the early church to do the end of mark which is a really contentious chapter there's only a few copies of it available and they all seem to contradict one another but at the end of mark he basically says you know go into all the world preach the gospel cast out demons in my name heal the sick in my name and therewith shall you be known or something along those lines Uh, and so to a pentecostal that like being you know being in you know imbued with the holy spirit is seen as kind of that pinnacle of of faith there's also a lot of um separation from other denominations like other denominations are either 
at risk of losing their salvation or were never saved in the first place, very anti-Catholic in general. Um, and they believe in literal faith healing. They believe in literal, um, you know, miracles. So if those things are not happening in your life, it kind of begins to, um, you know, they, they tend to doubt their faith a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. And I've talked with different people who were Pentecostal and kind of going back to the speaking in tongues thing, like there was so much shame around not being able to speak in tongues. So, so many people told me they're like, yeah, they're like, I just faked it to convince people uh-huh. and just kind of let it happen or made up some bullshit gibberish so they'll convince uh-huh. people. And because, you know, if you really couldn't speak in tongues, it was kind of like, you felt publicly shamed. You felt less than. Um, I can definitely imagine in that circumstance. And it's really yeah. interesting too, like how you say how they view every denom- other denomination as like not saved or wrong. And it's just every cult-like environment is like that because, you know, I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist church or the IFB church, and they had the same view of everyone else. And they were very anti-Catholic, very anti-Semitic. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's just so interesting how they each like look down on the other <laughs> and think they're better or they're right. And it's interesting um, to me about the speaking in tongues because I was always taught that that was like a false thing growing up, that it was demonic and that that's not possible to speak in tongues anymore. But it's just just interesting to see um, different people's interpretations of scriptures. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to, you know, there's, you know, in biblical interpretation, it's kind of like divining something, right? Like you're, you're searching Mm -hmm. for that historical context, right? Like if you're trained on it and like, biblical hermeneutics and whatnot you're you're trained to read scripture with your divisions lenses right like there's very few biblical scholars Mm -hmm. that i hear or have met that are critical thinkers they're rather they're thinkers in whatever discipline they're trained in and so you can't really you know take a baptist trained minister and throw him into a Pentecostal interpretation of scripture and expect him to even understand what's going on, right? Like he's immediately gonna mm-hmm. have these red yeah. walls up and be like, no, that's not how you interpret this. And there, I think it's a really big sign of any social group that you're building is when those divisions become so walled off, it means that you're probably not on the truth. You're probably like you've wandered off somewhere and you're now arguing over something that there's no real solution to because mm-hmm. yeah. it's impossible to resolve those differences, really, um, <laughs> unless you really humble yourself. <laughs> yeah, like I know what you mean, because it was so interesting to me because growing up, I was always told that if you're only true believers can interpret the Bible correctly, but the like illogical thing about that is Christians themselves have never agreed on interpretation and that's kind of a big reason to why people went into their own groups and separated just to like convince themselves like yeah I'm right so I'm just gonna convince myself by surrounding myself with people who also agree with me just to kind of confirm my own beliefs yeah yeah it's definitely a you know, it's a human thing. We do it in politics. We do it in, um, you know, even I, I'm involved in academia now to, mm-hmm. to a significant yeah. degree. And I'm even seeing it there. Like, you know, there's, there's certain debates that your field in your camp is kind of warring against the other. It's a little different in secular um, settings yeah. usually mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. critical thinking is prized, right? But in religion, yeah. it's not. It's really <laughs> no. not. No, not at all. And like, I mean, yeah, I guess it is a social thing to, you know, we naturally go into our groups, but like with these extremist religions, um, I feel like there's a whole like a militancy about them. And a lot of them have this um, dominism or theology (laughs) um, or this Christian nationalist agenda. So I feel like there is definitely um, a danger 
uh, with those issues. And, you know, in my personal experience um, with interacting with people outside of the faith, uh, you know, it's been incredible to meet people who they have their own viewpoints, but they're actually willing to hear out other people's beliefs and, you know, be okay with that and even be okay with changing their beliefs on evidence that is presented. Because like in the environment I grew up in, information was always so controlled and had very little access to a lot of different things. And that just didn't make sense to me because it's like, you know, if what you're telling us is absolute truth, like it can handle scrutiny. That was a, that was a big thing for me. So I got to the end of it, right? Like, um, you know, not fast forwarding too far in the story, but when I finally came to the point where I was going to, you know, start testing things for real, I came to that conclusion without even really needing to be told it. I was like, well, if I'm told that God's word is truth, then it should stand up to the test of a fair test, a fair assessment, right? But I think the question becomes, you know, what is a fair test? What is a fair assessment? And that's where, you know, Christian nationalists are starting to really differ from what Christianity, I don't want to say what it used to be, because that's not true at all. I mean, Christianity has always had, I think, religions, especially in the more theistic Mm -hmm. um, vein, have always had a nationalistic component, right? Like, whether that's Zionistic Judaism, whether that's Christian nationalism in the 21st century, like it will always be tied to that. And I think when we think about why, it's because when you're so tribal that you think you have figured out a book that's incredibly difficult to interpret more than the person next to you, it's not hard to make the conclusion that your politics are now like the bee's knees and everyone needs to listen to you, right? Yeah. mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of like one goes with the other. Um, And like you said, it's dangerous. It's, it's, I think, you know, my childhood and what it sounds like your childhood being restricted information is child abuse, 110%. Like, Mm -hmm. I I just don't think there's any, Mm -hmm. if you are being restricted information, that is normal to 95% plus of culture then that person who's doing that to you is not doing you a service, especially, I don't know about you, but information was restricted even up until I was like in my teens. Like that, that's kind oh, of yeah. ridiculous. Same <laughs> here. Yeah. Like I didn't have access to the internet until I was like 17. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a phone until I was like 15 or 16. I, um, so my, my dad one time tried to burn um, my progressive Christian books when I was a progressive Christian for a few years that was funny. Uh, he also tried to burn a Socratic logic textbook by a, uh, by a Catholic um, philosopher. And what was hilarious to me was like, those were the books on the shelf that he picked out, but he fully like left a lot of my like atheist books and like other Interesting, things. huh? That is. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I, I have a similar experience because um, like when I was in my teen years, Um, I ended up ordering just some books from Amazon that really put fundamentalism in general under um, a lens. And so when my dad saw or really was nosy and asked, oh, what books did you get? And once he saw they were on fundamentalism and why it could be dangerous and how it can be toxic, he immediately was like, you can't read those. And I was like, well, I bought them. He's like, no, you can't. And he took them from me and he hid them in the house, which I found and read anyways, but he still took them away. Yep. Yep. You know, the funny thing was when my dad did this, I was 21. I was a paramedic. I was working, doing my own my, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was letting me still stay in the house. Cause like, you know, I guess he had this fantasy that I was just going to stay there for until the end times came. Um, but, you know, I remember sitting outside the hospital after dropping a patient off and just being like, what are you doing and why? And he's like, well, I've decided not to burn them because like, you know, I think you should just move out. And that was like, that was the time like when I had already deconverted a little bit before that, but it's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me is like, I was a adult in the eyes of most people. I was you know, saving lives and doing my best to practice pre-hospital medicine with some level of critical thinking and help people. And 
I just was not able to do it in my own house. Uh, <laughs> that was that was scary. Oh yeah, I can definitely imagine. And so, um, so like, what was your mom's opinion of your uh, differing beliefs? Mm, like after I deconverted, or like, or just um, like, I, I guess I like, kind of like growing up. I guess as growing up, because I'm sure she had to see like some of the things you were reading and the tension between you and your father and different things. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think her thoughts were, have you ever read Myth of the Christian Nation by Greg Boyd? I have not. No, I need to. Yeah, you need to read that book. That book is amazing. So um, Greg Boyd, he's he's an odd theologian but he wrote this book called myth of a christian nation and both my mom and my dad read it and it's funny because their interpretations are wildly different my mom's interpretation was like fundamentalism as we know it needs overthrown instead we should start doing these like organic house churches and really trying to reconnect like you know the old church right but I saw this mm-hmm. and I had my right. certain criticisms. And I think those were the first moments in my mom, my mom, I think emerged as this kind of like counter-revolutionary. Like she saw fundamentalism and was like, mm-hmm. how can I make it better? Right. And when she saw me warring with my dad, I think she saw that as what are you doing warring against fundamentalism? Instead, we should be trying to change it for the better. So I think that kind of propped up a, attention between my mom and I because she was obviously reading these more liberal theological books but her conclusions were still very like the problem is not the mm-hmm. bathwater and we don't need to throw the baby out it's instead like we just need to remake what's here or return to like mm-hmm. the root um and and so on a more like family scale what started happening is as my mom had difficult had a difficult time in her marriage with my dad because you know I, I think Christianity just breeds narcissists I think my dad's one and um you know I don't care publicly if he you know hears that or whatnot mm-hmm. like I, yeah. I really truly believe it a hundred percent and I am of the opinion that her responses to that were usually um in the form of like these kind of codependent type things and so when I challenged Mm, my dad a lot of her own insecurities and like what he would do like she was worried about his anger she was worried about um you know me she didn't want me to push you know she wanted me to give in right um Mm -hmm. and I think it's just kind of indicative of the role that women are supposed to play in Christianity I think it breeds these like narc dependent codependencies a lot mm-hmm. of the time yeah uh, yeah because I've definitely noticed that too because you know like the bible it was written by a bunch of men and it promotes men as a leader in society this patriarchal structure and yep. you just see it and especially with a lot of the abuse cases that are coming out how because these men were left unchecked they used and abused their power um and they really like they love it because they're like oh like my my um you know in air quotes like my sacred text tells me that I'm in you know this is God's will like I'm in control I'm supposed to be the head and God is above (laughs) me all this stuff so they just use religion to justify um really like being in control and it's just really sad how how women are just like yeah like just submit to your husband and do what he tells you (laughs) Yeah, kind of like along those lines, I remember my mom, my mom really wanted to go back and get a degree because my parents are both college educated. I mean, my dad's a mm-hmm. doctor of chiropractic, right? Like it kind of, you know, he, he's a very educated person, right? I wouldn't say chiropractic is the best thing in the world that we can get into that. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, there are there are times where they've had interesting ideas. And so my mom was like, yeah, I want to go back to school and do X, Y, Z thing. And my dad was like, yeah, well, I just don't see that happening due to like where I'm at in practice and this, that, and the other. And my mom used to just like sit up and cry about it and just feel 
Um, like she really wanted to go do it. And so mm-hmm. I started trying to support my mom by trying to convince my dad that that's what she should do. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually it kind of got to be, he was like, well, why do you care so much? And I was like, why don't you <laughs> like, this is your <laughs> wife. Like, You're like, why don't you <laughs> asshole? Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, what is like, what is going through your head that your world is so focused on yourself? right that you've given up mm-hmm. the needs wants and values of those around you so much so that because like you know obviously you have to have boundaries you have to have self-care you have to have your own mm-hmm. you know personality but if the entire world dissolves around you and revolves around you then man i i just don't understand that um mental picture and i think that christianity really does a number on people right like it if you're a cis straight white man, you are n- not even realizing, I think, sometimes that you're the narcissist, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, I, w- I was talking to somebody about this and they were like, yeah, like, I really think that a lot of these people don't realize how self-centered they are and how they are either developing narc traits or they are narcissists just intrinsically. Yeah, because like, like I would definitely say that you know Christianity has been used, um, really to push um, white supremacy, really, and you know we can go back in history and look at segregation, and how Christians really wanted that they they really wanted segregation, and really to keep. I mean, it's really sad how like they didn't want um, races or interracial marriages to really exist. And, and, you know, thankfully that was legalized, but sadly we still have some people that day who still believe that interracial marriage should be banned or just left up to the states to decide. But it's always been about like um, preserving the, like the majority, I guess, group of like white Christians um, wanting to be in control. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um... I think the thing too is once they feel that power, they don't want to let it up, right? Uh, no. It's really, really difficult to root it out. And so tell me about your experiences at church. Like, did you go to a church or did you have your own thing at home or? Yeah, so it was a kind of transition period. So when I was younger, my dad was associate pastor of a few churches, right? But over time, with the whole like organic house church movement and whatnot, and my parents both kind of becoming radical in their own way, um, you know, they started doing these house churches. These these places would be crazy. I mean, there'd be a small group of 10 or 12 people. And I can remember like uh, it was yesterday, my mom's a type one diabetic and I was like prophesying that she was going to not need insulin in like nine months and telling mm. her to throw her insulin up away. And, oh, like, wow. Are rolling on the floor, like slain in the spirit. And this is a normal, oh. like middle-class household. Like this is not like it, it from the outside, you know, like you look at the house, you look at the family, you're like, yeah, normal middle-class American family. That was what was going on on Saturday nights you know? Uh, Uh, Wow. (laughs) And so, you know, these different states of mind or things people get into, I think part of it is like a performance or a show to fit in or conform to the group or to feel accepted. I think that definitely is a big part of it, but I think emotions, there has, I think there is definitely an emotional aspect. And part of me wonders, like, is it, you know, partly like the pressure they had to conform while also because, also maybe like they repress or don't do their emotions so they build up so much and it's somehow a way maybe for them to release that like what do you think from a logical standpoint Hmm. it's hard I think that when we're trying to think about why these movements behave so oddly like in charismaticism I mean, one, we need to remember that a lot of movements are charismatic, right? Like mm-hmm. charismatic yeah. religion specifically goes back like from an anthropological perspective, like 
there are various kinds of charismatic religion from folk religions to there's charismatic you know islamic individuals there's you know charismatic Mm -hmm. jewish individuals right i think it's usually people that are more predisposed to being neurotic and having mood swings i think it's individuals Mm -hmm. who generally have a certain like neuro um neurological makeup that they need Mm -hmm. that to feel fulfilled right Mm -hmm. um there's been, been a lot of good work by a guy by the name of andrew newberg in neurotheology and he looks at like um applying modern neuroscience to theology and the interaction of um you know human beings with their religious traditions and he's had some interesting findings on like speaking in tongues it actually like reroutes the blood uh flow from your temporal lobes and it kind of explains the association with feeling like something else is taking control of you right oh interesting Um, Mm mm-hmm and it's kind of cool to me to see the biological roots of that. So I think you're on to something. I think, you know, the secular sciences can be used to mm-hmm, kind explain. of look at this and explain what's happening um, so that we can understand it. And I think the idea there, too, is like people are very interested, you know, my friends, when I tell them, I'm like, yeah, I can still speak in tongues. Like, do you want to be slain in the spirit? Like, I can do that because I can still manufacture <laughs> these things. Like, they just because I don't have the belief anymore doesn't mean that I've lost the ability to do that. And I think it's it, there's been a lot of a lot of um, talk about it, but I think it's it's hypnotism, really, right? Like, mm, if you're susceptible to yeah. hypnosis, if you can hypnotize others, if you're charismatic in that way. Um, I think it's possible to make it in that movement and not even believe it, you know, fully. Yeah, interesting. Like, I've also kind of wondered, and I'm curious to look in if anyone's in a study of like certain personality types who are attracted to this. And I think that kind of goes a little bit with what you were saying about um, like um, the neurology of them or how they're wired and how that kind of plays into it. Um, and so did you always like question this or did you buy into it at first or start questioning it? Like, what were you like um, when you at least can't remember comprehending this religion? Yeah, so I think for me, it was a struggle because I'm a, you know, everybody I think <laughs> picks it up from the way I speak and whatnot and just kind of like what I do in my my online presence and whatnot, but mm-hmm. I'm really like, you know, intellectual and academic, like I do it for fun, right? Like, you know, people are like, what do you do for fun? Yeah. I am outdoorsy. I, I've got like a lot of different interests um, in that space. But then there's like me deep in philosophy books or reading the latest scientific literature and medical literature. Mm-hmm. And that was always there, right? Like, it, it's not like that it was not a key part of who I was. And so I think that there was a part of me that doubted everything around me and was skeptical of it because I'm naturally skeptical mm-hmm. but I pushed that part of me down and repressed that part of me we'll get back to that um when it comes to like sexuality and whatnot but yeah I mm-hmm. really doubled down on it I believed it 110 percent 120 percent like I would have died for Christ I would have there oh, was wow. so mm. much passion and enthusiasm in me for those ideas. And it's the same amount of passion that it's in me right now for, you know, doing good research or, you mm-hmm. know, really caring for patients or, you know, combating misinformation or insert whatever thing it is that I'm passionate about now. That same zeal was there. Um, it's why it hurts so much, to be honest, when people try to say, mm-hmm. especially my family, like, oh, no, you were never a Christian. You always doubted. And I'm like, you're right. I always doubted. But that's a very distinct part of being a Christian, right? Is that mm-hmm. yeah, you doubt, but then in Christianity, as long as you come back, you're fine, right? And they were okay mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. But they are not okay mm-hmm. with the fact that I chose to go the other way. Yeah. And I think really they do that to deal with their own cognitive dissonance because really in their religion 
if you're, you know, this is what I heard growing up at least, that if you're truly saved, you can never walk away. And when someone does that they believe was a Christian, then they have to say to themselves, oh, well, they never really were truly saved because if they, you know, they would basically like they struggle because it contradicts what they believe, what they're saying. So they have to explain a way around it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if you have a friend who's like doing something right, like they're a good person, you have a lot of trust in them and whatnot, and then all of a sudden they like, you know, turn out to be Jeffrey Dahmer or something crazy. Like, oh no, you yeah. are gonna be like, uh, whoa, my like perception of them has changed, and you now have this cognitive dissonance of like, you know, how do I treat that situation? It, I could see mm-hmm. it being the same thing with them. Is like, okay, here's this person I thought was like steadfast to the faith they're now the exact opposite and they're evil and they're awful. And like, this is horrible. They're going to hell. You have to make sense of that. I, I think I remember and can mm-hmm. kind of even re- recreate some of the feelings of seeing friends of mine who, um, you know, transition to more liberal phase or like deconverted and whatnot um, and feeling that same way, right? Like having to be like, Oh, they were never a Christian to begin with, or, Oh, they were just weak. I'm strong. You know, I'm better than them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so could you talk about ways that um, these doctrines affected you psychologically and emotionally? Mm. So I think emotionally, it kind of preyed on my natural passion and enthusiasm for things and made me have to double down to degrees that were unhealthy, right? Like, I think it's okay to be intense. I think it's okay to be dedicated. I think it's okay to be all in to something but I think that these extreme beliefs require so much of you that you never really learn how to take care of yourself or your own needs mm-hmm. yes. and then people around you are like well why are you so intense and why are you not taking care of your needs and you know you have to respond to them you're like well this is what Christ like wanted right like you know if I truly am going to believe, right, that my, you know, this is going back to my family, that the end of the world is coming, right, then I need to be Mm -hmm. out sharing the gospel, I need to be, you know, actually preparing for the end of days, I need to be reading my Bible, and it puts a ton of pressure on a developing soul, on a developing, like, human being who really hasn't learned to live yet right like I didn't learn how to live and I'm still learning how to live and that was kind of taken from me um and I think that's the biggest psychological damage is the the lost years the thinking about you know where I could have been emotional intelligence wise and like you know just Mm, yeah you know social skills and whatnot Mm, because I was also homeschooled from second grade through high school so yeah didn't really develop Mm. much of that and I know she I was homeschooled my whole life too yeah oof (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so I'm glad you mentioned about the end times things because I thought I was forgetting something and dig more into um, the end time stuff because how how crazy were your parents about it? Because I know you were saying that they thought they knew that at a specific time the world would end. Mm-hmm. So they were convinced, they being my dad because patriarchal structure, that 2012 was the end of the world. And there were a couple of things feeding into that belief. One, an abysmal understanding of astronomy. Um, so there was, I don't know if you follow conspiracy theories on the internet or whatnot. There's this planet that supposedly was going to, along with the whole Mayan calendar thing, like wind up throwing Earth off its axis Um it, they gave it a some sort of air, some sort of um, Sumerian name, Nibiru or something like that. There were mm-hmm. all these like conspiracies, and it was during the Alex Jones rise with Sandy Hook and all that. Oh, and he yeah. started talking about it, and my dad was kind of linked in with that network, and so they had been zeroing in on 2010-ish being the end times, just based mm-hmm. on. Um, you know, mathematical calculations with the state of Israel and whatnot. But then when they centered on 2012, that was like 100% sure. That was like, it's it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny. I remember 
my dad being like, yep, Obama's gonna, you know, throw martial law in as soon as this happens. And like, you know, <laughs> yeah. we had game plans, roadmaps, bug out bags, ammunition. Oh my a survival wow. shelter. Um, we had, I think we had at one time, five years of like MREs, um, 5,000 to 10,000 rounds of ammunition, um, the whole nine yards. And there came a day in time, I think it was like December of 2012, and it was supposed to be like in that region. And I kind of had a light bulb moment. I'm like, wait, what if this doesn't happen? Like, what if? Hmm. Mm -hmm, Yeah. This is a hypothesis I can test. This is something actually present. It's not a vague religious belief. It's not praying to God that I feel better tomorrow over something, right? It is, I believe mm-hmm. truly that God is influencing my father to have this belief and that I am on the right path. If this does not happen, my faith will be shaken. And sure enough, mm-hmm. I mean, January 1st, 2013, I wake mm-hmm. up and I'm like, well, fuck, what now? <laughs> <laughs> and so what I'm curious to what your parents' reactions were, because recently I watched um, the Heaven's Gate docu- documentary on HBO Max. And for those uh, who are going to listen, you don't know what that is. Basically, long story short, these people believe that an alien spacecraft was going to come pick them up at a certain time. And all of a sudden in the news when they heard a comet was coming by earth on a certain day, they believed that comet was actually um, a spaceship. But when that didn't happen um, and a few of them left because they realized it was bullshit, but some of them um, had cognitive dissonance and tried to explain it away and justify it. And even their leader did, and they still continue believing a spaceship would come, but it's just interesting how different people react. So how did your parents react when the world did not end? Yeah, so my dad being the um, star of the Dunning-Kruger show that he is, um, decided to double down and be like, yeah, this this is definitely still going to happen. We were just wrong on the time. And I'm like, <laughs> bro, you've been talking about this exact date like for forever. And even to this day, I have never gotten an apology for the harms of my childhood, what I have gotten an apology for though, mm-hmm. yeah. is I just shouldn't have set an exact date. Why? Because he still has this belief that we are within a decade, but I'm pretty good at math. I'm pretty sure that like mm-hmm. we're coming up on a decade now from like that. Cause I'm going on 27, <laughs> I was 14, like, give or take one or two that's like 13 okay we're, we're kind of on the edge there I you know but those beliefs don't change my mom on the other hand I think she never really fully bought into it she was just going along with the flow because I remember asking her I'm like well mom what are we gonna do if it doesn't happen and she's like eh, just mumbled right and I'm like yeah huh. mm-hmm. my brother on the other hand kind of got um wrapped up in it he's about five years younger than me and right around that time it was really scary to him like he was probably like eight or nine and -hmm. my parents had always told us like hey you're never gonna get old enough to be married you're not gonna have to worry about like you know any of the stuff like the world has to worry about with like retirement or any of this stuff mm -hmm. so don't worry about it don't worry about college and I started prepping for the SAT because it was right on that edge right and my mom Mm -hmm. was the one who even a year like before the quote-unquote end of days she started having me prep for my SAT and convinced my dad to let me do that so I I kind of love the suspicion that my mom didn't believe it and thought it was bullshit and still to this day thinks it was Mm -hmm. but she went along with it because that was safe right because you don't want to piss the narcissist off you don't want to yeah, fight no. the patriarchy and you know like stir up a hornet's nest there yeah most definitely and so and i'm just curious 
um, to what your opinion on this is, but why do you think um, a lot of different religions are so obsessed with the end times? Um, I think it has something to do with mortality, right? Like a feeling like there mm-hmm. has to be something else, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do, I think, also with the fragile state and nature and relationship of man to nature, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're, if you, if you think about us, right? Like we're a, uh, we're a mammal that is really freaking smart, but the universe doesn't care about us and it mm-hmm. constantly tries to kill us. Yes. It sustains <laughs> us, right? Like there are parts of nature that sustain us the food we eat, you know, the environments that are healthy for us, right? But like 95% of it doesn't want us here. It is actively mm-hmm. trying to out-involve us. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that that tension is kind of like felt, if it, even if it's not acknowledged consciously by many religions, because it, you're in that fight with it, especially in western like enlightenment cultures um if you if you go to more eastern religions if you go to more like you know hunter gatherer folk religions and whatnot you find more of that like we're going to live in harmony with nature we're going to use it for our benefit we're going to you know um you know respect the earth and respect everything around us right and it's not dominionist, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to dominate yeah. it and mm-hmm. use it for what it, you know, what it gives. And you're not constantly in, in pressure with it. I don't, I haven't, at least I haven't seen a lot of obsession with end times in those types of phase traditions um, and whatnot. I think there's something there. Um, that'd just be my guess. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for answering that. That's interesting because I like to talk with different people and see what they think about that and I think also from a little bit more of a psychological perspective um I think the end times can definitely it pushes that us versus them mindset like oh like we're going to be saved and like we're going to be in this place together exclusive away from everyone else and all these other lesser forms of human beings or whatever or sinners or evildoers are gonna be you know burning in hell over here but we're we're gonna be all be together we're gonna see our loved ones will be separated um from anyone who's different from us really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're um you know it's funny you kind of added on to like you know a point that i tell everybody is like you know my family was cult like cult jason you know but mm-hmm. they all blend yeah. in right because it's normal to want to be around people that are like you, but it's not normal to want it to the degree that you need to escape to be with people that are just like you. Mm, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and in and and then times theology, there is a lot of that, right? Like, uh, you know, the world's going to end and all the evildoers are going to go away. Well, who are the <laughs> evildoers? They're the people I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, so where what is your relationship with your parents like now oof um i think i'm still in a state of grief of over what i lost right like i think it's always going to be you know something Mm -hmm. that yeah you have to work through really hard i'm currently you know doing some more intensive therapy I, I, for a while, I saw like a secular therapist. I found mm-hmm. a few people through the secular yeah. therapy project. It was great, but I'm actually doing, um, you know, some therapy slash coaching right now with a um, trauma coach out of the Center for Religious Trauma Resolution. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with their work, but they've been great. Um, what we've been kind of looking at lately is the fact that my relationship with my parents has morphed into this thing of just like doing the bare minimum to just maintain contact Mm, um yeah without messing with the system case in point i work on a covid vaccine trial i'm obviously like going to become an allopathic physician like i am 
you know, on a path that is so incredibly different from my family. Mm, and yeah, it brings up all these weird things. So I was talking to my mom, like, hey, you're older, you're diabetic, you're this, you're that. I think that you should, you know, consider once the evidence starts coming out, like whether or not you want to get the COVID vaccine or not. And I'm here and I'm willing to talk to you about like which way you go with it. But I'm just saying, I've been seeing a lot of really bad cases. I don't think that this disease is exactly like the flu. I think that it's, you know, something that we need to really, really watch. And I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, any, she, uh, you know, just listened to me. Little did I know it, she told that to my dad. It then got brought up in a conversation weeks later that, quote unquote, how dare you talk to my wife about getting the vaccine if my oh, wife my. would mm. disobey me wow. and go out and get the vaccine then you know there would be a, a problem in our marriage but i don't want you influencing her, her in any way oh wow well mm. you know this is this is my mom this is a fully functional ish human adult i guess and i i'm kind of sitting in this rock and a hard place where you have a system that is so incredibly antithetical to everything that secular life is about. And it's hard to connect with them on any level. Um, I've managed to somewhat still stay connected to my brother, but even that gets a little intense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then combine that with the fact that I finally like openly started admitting it to secular friends and was like, Hey, um, I told my parents, and this is maybe a little, a little premature on my bit, cause I'm not incredibly sure about the label yet, but I call myself in the secular world now I'm bi-curious, but I told my parents yeah. at the time that mm-hmm. I was bi and yeah. I'm fairly sure that I'm going to wind up using that as a label, but I, I'm like still like really cautious and just starting to own it. Because uh, mm-hmm. yeah. during puberty, I started noticing like attraction to anybody and everybody. Um, I wasn't, you know, pan in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I definitely noticed being attracted to guy friends and girlfriends. I repressed the same sex attraction. And I think now mm-hmm. I'm still trying to work through that. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, once I did that, the whole family, it was a huge shockwave. Like, my dad my dad told me like uh, i just hope you i hope you live with this disease or i hope it i hope that when you live with this disease you find a way of coping or something like that and um funny enough my mom actually behind my dad's back like called me and wanted to talk about it and was like hey when did you know this know that i still love you no matter what Mm -hmm. and so that was that was really good to hear Mm -hmm. yeah um i mean wow i think that is really harsh that like your dad automatically assumed that you're going to get a disease because i mean obviously since they're like alternative medicine i'm sure they have no idea about the options (laughs) available now especially like prep which is incredible um that we have that now that can help um sexually active people who have sex um, with the same gender really like have a very, very low chance of contracting HIV being on that medicine. So it's, and you know, and I'm hoping like maybe in the next 20 years, <laughs> we can have a, a vaccine that can protect people from that. Um, yeah, I think with the, you know, the mRNA, mRNA technology that we're seeing, mm-hmm. I think we're going to be, um, you know, on the way there. Obviously, yeah. um, you know, there's risks the closer and closer we, you know, get to developing, you know, our technologies, because I think mm-hmm. at some point we're going to, yeah. you know, either hit a wall or we're going to hit into something that's going to be like, you know, really, really toxic and we're not going to be able to control it to the degree that we want. Right. Which is why mm-hmm. it's always important to, yeah. you know, wait for the, wait for the clinical trials to be done. But mm-hmm. the, um, that I've been seeing some stuff lately. Like it looks good. Looks like really good to hit that target. Okay. Yeah. That's nice. 
Um, and so as we get closer to the end of the interview, I think, you know, the last question is what advice do you have for people who are stuck in these toxic religious environments? Hmm. I think for me, the advice that I have for anybody in these toxic religious environments is if you are feeling like you are wanting to escape, do so in a manner that is as removed from your trauma as possible while also finding ways to express the trauma in so that you can do that. What I mean by that is when I left, it was very sudden and it was very swift and it was a giant buildup and it could have cost me if I was five years younger, right? Thankfully, I had a job. I had the money. I had enough friends to couch surf for a while. If I did not have that and I would have been thrown out on the street, my life may have turned out differently. Mm, and as much yeah. as people might be passionate and skeptical and critical of the toxic things in their life, and we should always be calling out power structures, know mm -hmm. when yeah. the fight is going to be too much that it's going to take the only safety you have economically or, or whatnot mm -hmm. and yeah. plan your escape so that you're doing it with the right resources at the right time. Um, you know, there's plenty of resources out there to help you remain anonymous and still talk about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, hopefully those resources continue growing. Mm, yes, yes, great advice. Um, thank you, Judah, for coming on the show. And is there a specific place where people can connect with you online? Yeah, so um, I actually am trying to start a blog up. It's going rather slowly just due to other, you know, work commitments and whatnot. But it's uh, on Medium. It's called Deconstructing Medicine. And kind of the idea behind it is to talk a little bit about deconstruction, but mostly about mm -hmm. like philosophy yeah. of science and medicine, which is kind of like my uh, guilty pleasure. And mm -hmm. I yeah. like talking about alternative medicine and how it views the world and like how it's different than the scientific method and how some of it might overlap. And, you know, I think some listeners might find that a really interesting read. Mm, yes, I, I will definitely link that um in the show notes um and thank you again judah for coming on the show and this is speaking up with andrew pledger this podcast is distributed by anchor from spotify is the easiest way to make a podcast everything you need is in one space anchor has the tools to record edit and distribute your podcast and it's all free. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to start creating your own podcast today. Thank you for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Please support the show by sharing, donating, or leaving a review. Your support is much appreciated.